KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The status of COVID ahead of holiday gatherings. Obviously, there's going to be lots of gatherings, but there are things that we can do to make sure they're safe for everyone. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Our investigation continues into the racial covenants found in San Diego housing deeds and one family who fought against them. My mother was determined that uh, um, she wanted the house. And it's the season for beans, greens, yams, potatoes, and turkey. Chef Brandon Sloan joins us with expert advice for turkey talk. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. The push to distribute booster doses of the COVID-19 vaccine continues across the country. And just recently, Dr. Anthony Fauci recommended the overwhelming majority of Americans should receive an additional dose. And with many families gathering again for the Thanksgiving holiday tomorrow, health officials continue to press Americans to keep their guard up and take every precaution to prevent a deadly winter surge. Joining the program now with a look ahead is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jade. Great to be with you again. Our definition of fully vaccinated has changed somewhat, given the addition of booster doses into our vaccine regimen. Uh, Will we continue to need boosters as the pandemic goes on? Absolutely. Uh, We should consider fully vaccinated is three shots. That is the booster shot when a person reaches six months. All these vaccines have significant waning. So by five or six months, a lot of that initial protection, which was terrific, 95% efficacy is uh, faded. That is, it can get down to 60% or 70%, which is a big drop down from 95%. So that's why it's imperative that everyone who's gotten the first two shots goes ahead and keeps that protection level as high as it can be. It is restored fully to at least 95%, which is terrific. And it may last for quite a long time. The deadlines for many San Diego vaccine mandates are approaching. What role do workplace mandates play in the fight against COVID-19? You know, it's really unfortunate we had to go to this mandate route because you would have thought if you follow the science, these vaccines that have been given in billions of people, that we would all want to get them and all be protected. But because of all the anti-vaccine and anti-science, that's why the mandates became inevitable here. And we need to accelerate them. We need to get everyone vaccinated in order to deal with Delta, which is a hyper-contagious virus strain. We need to get 90% of this country's population vaccinated. We're at 59%. We're so far short. And we're in attrition because a lot of the people that had gotten early vaccinated have now gotten past six months and have uh, had some decline protection. So we've got to get moving. Mandates work. 
they are really working well. And it's just so sad we had to resort to that. The CDC has seemingly moved away from herd immunity even as a tangible goal. Why is that? Well, we got, we're not going to get population level immunity when we have 90 some thousand cases a day that are new and we're going up. The only way we could get to where we need to be is containment, which would be a few thousand cases a day in this so-called endemic state. So we get out of the pandemic, we go endemic. That's the goal. No longer are we thinking we can squash zero COVID. No place really in the world can do that because it's such a hyper-contagious strain. And it could get worse. That is, the virus could still evolve. So our goal is containment, and we're going in the wrong direction right now. And unfortunately, we'll see the effects of that in California and San Diego as well. Why haven't COVID vaccines been able to reliably block transmission? Well, they do block transmission in some respects. So first of all, before Delta, they had a great role in blocking transmission. Most of the transmission was reduced substantially. With Delta, even in household contacts, which is a high-risk zone for transmission spread, that is, uh, there's reduction, but it isn't as much as it was in prior strains of the virus. But if you prevent infections, you prevent spread. And that's the greatest contribution of the vaccines. They prevent the darn infections to start with. And so that is why in Israel and in the UK and now in Belgium, we're seeing the use of boosters on top of the initial vaccinations are blocking spread, blocking new cases. And so that is really vital information that we're not incorporating in this country. What's the FDA status of the Merck antiviral COVID pill? And and when can consumers expect it to hit the market? And do we know if it's safe to use with vaccines? That hearing by the FDA is going to be next week. And the publication uh, of the trial is coming also next week. So we'll see more data. Uh, It certainly looked good. That is, there was about a 50% reduction in death or hospitalization. And the Pfizer drug similarly looks quite good as a pill that's taken for five days early in the course of uh, COVID. So it will work. There shouldn't be any reason why people who are vaccinated wouldn't benefit if they get COVID. But the key is to prevent COVID in the first place. But the pills are going to help us. It's given us yet another dimension of uh, a powerful way to block the progression of the virus once someone has become infected. It does rely on getting testing early, and we still don't have the best scenario for getting rapid testing. But that's something that'll be necessary for the pills to work well. And several countries across the globe have recently reinstituted lockdowns, and the World Health Organization is warning of a surge in deaths over the winter months. Is the same to be expected here in the United States? No, I don't think we're going to see any lockdowns in this country, but uh, we don't even have mass use. I mean, (laughs) we have no mitigation. So we have a long ways to go to scale that up. We're starting to see places in the country bring back the, the requirement for masks. It's, it's going to become inevitable that as this new fifth wave in the U.S. gains momentum, it's already started in the Midwest and the North, New England states. As it gains momentum throughout the country, we're going to need to get back with masks and up our protection. The holiday season, we know from last year with the monster wave, you know, breeds spread. And so we're not doing enough to counter that, but we won't need lockdowns. Is COVID seasonal? Well, seasonal, depending on how you uh, interpret that word, when it gets cold, colder, as we're seeing in states like Michigan and Minnesota 
and Vermont, New Hampshire, people go indoors. And they're not only uh, people gathering indoors, uh, often without masks, but also you have the air that's not humidified, uh, not without filtration. And so that adds to the spread markedly. And so this is the problem. Now in Canada, which is colder than the US, colder than the states I just mentioned, they're doing really well because they use masks plus vaccinations. So our problem is we could cope with this change of season and the colder weather if we were to up our defense mechanisms and we're not using them fully as we should. You mentioned long COVID earlier. Do we know if vaccines prevent this form of the disease? Well, there's a really good view, review in the journal Nature of everything we know about the interaction between vaccines and long COVID. And the bottom line is we still don't know that much, but if there is protection from vaccines from long COVID, it's, it's modest. It's not enough. People who get COVID after vaccination, that is a breakthrough, have a risk of long COVID that's substantial. Uh, it's reduced perhaps some, but not nearly as much as we would have hoped. Uh, and so, you know, that's another reason why boosters are important. We have a Washington Post uh, essay today, Mike Osterholm and I, uh, about the necessity of boosters, even though the CDC has not urged them for people under age 50. All the data, all the data supports how it is essential that we use the boosters as a critical defense mechanism. Are there any variants of concern out there that officials are currently tracking, or is Delta still the dominant strain? Delta is it. I mean, we have no new variant that is of uh, functional significance. Delta is so uh, potent in terms of its transmission capability that it will take uh, be very uh, difficult for another strain of this virus to overtake it. It is now taking over the entire world. And all the sequencing that's being done now with the virus, there's no meaningful difference. This, this is it. And hopefully we won't have something beyond Delta because this is bad enough. This is really, uh, take. if we had never had Delta, we would be past this pandemic now. But this is what's given us uh, such a grand challenge. And you've said before that one of the biggest tools against COVID is testing. What are the major obstacles in getting more widespread testing at this point? Well, Jade, I, I don't understand why this country has not gotten it at, its act together for testing. In countries that are successful in managing even the Delta wave, they have free tests for everyone, an ample supply that either is mailed or you can just pick up at a local pharmacy for free. We don't even have the tests here. In, in, the, in Europe, there's over 100 rapid tests that are available. We have one not available and expensive. It should be free. It should be available to every household to pick up and it can be used like for the holiday gatherings. It's perfect that everybody does a rapid test before you gather and do it on a daily basis. Then you know you're not infectious. And if your test is positive, you, you stay away from other people. We're just not using this and it's unfathomable. And we're still relying on antiquated means that are not these PCR tests that started the pandemic are not the answer. That just tells us if you've been, if you've had the virus, even remnants, it doesn't tell you if you're infectious. And there's just no excuse that this country hasn't gotten this right yet. I, I am just so frustrated about it. We are still in a pandemic. We are coming up on, on the holidays here. Is it safe to, to travel and gather? Well, if you've had 
your booster shot? Yes, I'd say it is. But if not, I'd be worried if you're five, six months out. And as far as gathering, I would want to know that everybody I'm gathering with is fully vaccinated, which means if they're past that six month mark, they got a booster. So those are the considerations that I consider now as far as safety for gathering. I mean, obviously, there's going to be lots of gatherings for Thanksgiving and throughout the holiday season. But there are things that we can do to make sure they're safe for everyone. All right. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jade. For decades in San Diego and across the U.S., housing deeds with racist restrictions blocked people of color from buying or renting homes. iNews source reporter Roxana Popescu has this story about how one San Diego family pushed back. Tom Hom is at the door of the house he used to live in 74 years ago. But no one's home. If Hom is disappointed, he doesn't show it. Actually, he's all smiles. He's remembering the big attic bedroom he used to share with his brothers, family gatherings, watching fireworks from his upstairs bedroom. I have fond memories at this house here. All the dinners and things, bringing friends over. And here's where the family grew up. His family lived a good life here. I feel we were very fortunate to have spent all those days in this house. This home would never have been his if it weren't for his mother's courage. The year was 1947, and Hom's mother and her 12 children needed a bigger house. They set their sights on this spacious fixer-upper in North Park. But there was a problem. The family was Chinese-American, and the house was in a neighborhood where many properties had racially restrictive covenants. A restrictive covenant is that they designate uh, who can live there, who, who are not allowed to live there. And most of these covenants were against minorities. These racial restrictions were prevalent throughout San Diego on properties from Julian to Point Loma. In fact, iNewsource found racist language in more than 10,000 historic property records across San Diego County. Mary Jo Wiggins, a law professor at the University of San Diego, says restrictive covenants were a powerful deterrent for both buyers and sellers. That's because neighbors could sue if someone sold a house to a home buyer who wasn't white. It was understood among the residents that these covenants were there. So that from day one, disincentivized any resident from selling their home, marketing their home, advertising their home to anyone who wasn't a member of the favored group. In 1948, the Supreme Court ruled that racial covenants are unconstitutional. But a year earlier, when Hom's family was trying to buy a home, they were still in full force. To land a home, his mother fought back with friendliness. Hom describes her unusual way of winning over the neighbors. She went to house by house within four blocks, introduced herself, and said that she had a number of children. She promised her kids would be well-behaved, and then she invited the neighbors over for tea, telling them, I would like you to, any time, come over the house and have tea with, with us. And so she made, she made friends, and nobody complained. At his current home in Chula Vista, 94-year-old Hom pulls out old photos of the house and his family. That's my mother. And then James is my brother, biggest brother. Mm-hmm. Moving into that home changed the course of Tom Hom's life and many other lives. In 1963, he became San Diego's first minority city council member. 
and as a real estate agent, he knocked on doors just like his mother did to help Asian Americans buy homes in segregated neighborhoods. He says his mother was brave and determined and taught him the value of community connections. My mother, of course, was an immigrant, but we were raised in, in the city of San Diego, and, and, and so we're as American as anybody else. Eventually, society caught up with the Supreme Court and racial covenants fell out of fashion. More recently, a new law was signed in California in September that will make it easier for homeowners to look up restrictive covenants and erase them. Hom says that while amending covenants is an option, it's more important to ensure that people are welcomed and not just on paper. For KPBS, I'm iNewsource investigative reporter Roxana Popescu. This story was co-produced by Cody Dulaney and Mary Plummer. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. After last year's pandemic locked down Thanksgiving, this year's celebration with family and friends gives us so much to be thankful for. But it does raise one big question. After last year, did we forget how to cook a big meal? So now, more than ever, Midday Edition's annual show, Turkey Talk, is here with answers to your Thanksgiving questions. And before we begin, we'd like to salute our Turkey Talk guest for many years, Chef Bernard Gias. Chef Bernard is retired now, enjoying family life and cooking up something marvelous for his own Thanksgiving. Thanks so much, Chef Bernard, for sharing so much with us over the years. Now this year, we are delighted to welcome Chef Brandon Sloan, culinary chef at Pendry San Diego's Provisional Kitchen. He's our turkey talk expert, and we've heard from listeners who need some help preparing their special holiday meal. So Chef Brandon, happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to the show. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe your culinary journey? Sure, absolutely. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I'm now out here in San Diego at the Pendry Hotel. I started culinary school back in Phoenix, Arizona. I went to Arizona State first and couldn't really find my niche until uh, I got into the culinary world and really started getting in the kitchen and I just kind of fell in love with it from there. And what are you looking forward to the most this Thanksgiving? Well, you know, as a chef, we're usually spending Thanksgiving cooking for other people. But afterwards, I usually on Friday get to spend it with my family, at least my family here in San Diego, which is mostly my friends and people that are also in the industry that get the day off after Thanksgiving. So we celebrate it together on that day. Now, you recently hosted a chef's giving meal. Can you tell us about some of the dishes you made? And what does that mean, chef's giving? So we started this about four years ago. Um, Every year we invite about six to eight different chefs around San Diego to do a version of their favorite Thanksgiving dish. And we do about a four course meal. There's two courses on each one. $30 of each meal goes to the San Diego Food Bank. Each ticket sold will provide 150 meals for each member of the community. 
And it's, it's just a really good time for the chefs to get out of their normal kitchens and to do something fun and different instead of the traditional Thanksgiving meal. I'm usually in charge of the turkey. So this year we do something a little different, you know, like I said, out of the ordinary. So we did a more of a Greek style turkey. We did a rotating shawarma with the leg and the breast meat. We sliced it off and rolled it in a house-made pita, served over three different types of hummus. We also took the uh, stuffing and combined it with falafel. So we had fried falafel stuffing on the plate and then cranberry tzatziki. So you have, um, you know, traditional flavors with a Greek style turkey dinner. Just goes to show you can do Thanksgiving in just about any way possible. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Let's, let's get into some of the questions from our listeners. Hi, this is Ben from Claremont. I've never made a big Thanksgiving meal before. So I'm just wondering if you had any general advice and what's uh, some of the easier stuff to make for those who don't have a whole lot of experience doing this sort of thing? Well, I guess we got to start with the turkey. Um, When you have a big group of people, um, they say about a pound per person. So I I actually think that's pretty accurate. Um, I like to cook like a big 20 pound turkey. It's just more fun when you have a, a big turkey as opposed to like more of a 10, 12 pound turkey. Um, it does take a little more experience, I would say. Um, you don't necessarily have to cook a huge turkey for Thanksgiving. You can actually just order turkey breasts and do it that way. If you have like a smaller family of four, a whole turkey is is almost unnecessary unless you love the Thanksgiving uh, leftovers like I do. You don't necessarily need to that. You can just get a turkey breast from the store and roast it whole just like that. So Typically, I would just take one large turkey breast, salt and pepper, simple on the top. And then you want to put a little bit of turkey stock in the bottom of the pan to keep it moist and you can roast it in the oven and it'll be a much quicker, easier process to uh, get that turkey breast to the proper temperature. Um, I think a lot of people get stumped with uh, with gravy and, you know, kind of stress over that as well. One tip I have for for gravy nowadays is they they sell really good bone broth um, at different stores. And if you pick up like a nice thing of bone broth, the only thing you would have to do at that point is to create a roux. So you just get some flour and some butter and you cook that down in a pot and you add your bone broth slowly and you have a really nice gravy. You don't even have to, you know, spend the day taking all the bones from the turkey and roasting them and making a traditional turkey stock to have a nice gravy. Oh, I like that. Now, a few of our listeners have questions specifically about turkey preparation, and uh, here they are. Happy Thanksgiving, Chef Brandon. This is Kurt from Marina Del Rey. Do you have to thaw out the turkey before cooking, or can you cook it frozen? You cannot cook a turkey frozen. I would not recommend that. So you definitely want to get your turkey a few days ahead of time. Don't wait and scramble at the last minute and get your turkey because most of the time they are frozen from the store. And you want to give yourself a couple of days in the refrigerator to naturally thaw out. That's typically the best way to defrost a turkey, the safest way. Um, Once you defrost your turkey, for me, I do it the same way every year. I take the legs off of the turkey and then you can cook the legs and the breasts properly separate. So for me, I like to cook the breasts on the bone. I season it or I brine it first. Then once I brine it for about two days, I take it out 
I season it with salt and pepper and I let it dry for a day in the fridge. And that's what's going to help create a really crispy skin on the outside. Cooking for just the breast is pretty simple. I, I turn the oven up to about 500 degrees, uh, very hot at the beginning. We put it on a rack and put it into the oven until you start to see some color on the skin. Once you start to see the skin starting to turn a golden brown, you're going to want to turn down your oven to about 350 and allow the breast to cook to 155 internal temperature. After removing it from the oven, let it sit on your counter for about 30 minutes and the heat should carry over the turkey breast to about 165, which would be perfect temperature for a moist turkey breast. And I can testify, chef, you cannot cook it frozen because I tried many years ago. (laughs) It's just not possible. (laughs) Yeah, definitely don't try and cook it from frozen and definitely don't put it in your deep fryer. (laughs) Okay, so here's another question. Hi, chef. My name's Connor. I'm from San Diego. And my question is, what is the best way to season a turkey? So as described before, I like to brine my turkey first. The brine that I like to use, I like to do fennel with orange. I think those two flavors really go well together and um, add some nice freshness and acidity to the turkey as well. So once you brine your turkey for about two days, you're going to have a lot of flavor already inside of the turkey from just sitting in that salt and sugar mixture. After that, you simply just need a little bit of salt and pepper inside underneath the skin and on the outside other than that i like to take some butter and put it under the skin before i roast it ah so that butter under the skin is a good idea because uh, people no longer have two days to brine their turkey any other suggestions as to seasoning for a turkey other than butter Sure. You know, there's so many different routes. Like I, I kind of explained in Chef's Giving that every year I like to do something different. So even at home, if you have like a nice Cajun seasoning is always fun. Or I don't know if you'd like to get wild and do like maybe a curry seasoning one year. Turkey is is fun and it, it should be it should be fun and you can treat it differently every year. For me, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I like salt, pepper and uh, maybe some herbs, but that's about it for me. Here's a question about actually cooking the turkey. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hello, Chef Brandon. This is Mary from Alpine. My question is, is it better to use turkey bag uh, and cook the turkey in turkey bag in the oven or use the traditional methods and baste the turkey? Thank you and happy Thanksgiving. To be honest, I have not um, cooked turkey in a bag since I was a kid. Like my mom used to do it that way. And I kind of grew up doing it that way. But once I started cooking uh, professionally, I think doing it more of a traditional route and basting it and really be careful with the thermometer not to overcook it is, is really the way to go. Nowadays, you can cook it in a bag, but sous vide. And uh, that's what a lot of chefs are are going towards nowadays because it keeps your turkey breast moist. It can hold warm for a very long time, especially in a restaurant setting, which makes it easier for the chefs to keep the turkey moist throughout the night. What is sous vide? This is um, a more modern and precise way to cook. They sell immersion circulators. Um, Now you can get them on Amazon. You can get a nice one for about 150 bucks. Um, Basically, you stick it into water, like a a pot of water, and it holds the water temperature, a consistent temperature, which would be equal to what you want your turkey to be cooked to. So you 
put your turkey breast into a bag, you season it, and you take the air out of the bag and you put it into the water until the turkey breast is cooked all the way through, allowing it to cook to the exact temperature. Got it. One of our favorite midday edition guests, legal analyst Dan Eaton, has a very non-legal question about smaller Thanksgiving gatherings. Here's Dan. The fact is that in this COVID era, even now with some opening, gatherings are not as large as they used to be. So here's the question. People are increasingly uh, cooking uh, turkey breasts. Uh, rather than whole turkeys. And the challenge there, particularly if it's a turkey breast uh, that is uh, without bones, how do you keep the turkey moist? And how do you get the same effect that you have when you're cooking a whole turkey when you're just uh, cooking a boneless turkey uh, breast? If you can solve that problem, you are better than any internet source that I have consulted over the last week. Wow. Well, cooking turkey breasts, um, you can definitely keep it moist and it it doesn't need to be uh, a challenge either. So I would take a nice shallow pan. If you have a a rack that can keep the turkey breast lifted up off the bottom of the pan, that would be best. What you want to do is take some turkey stock or chicken stock and put it in the bottom of the pan. Put some herbs, maybe some onion, garlic, rosemary, um, some sage, and put that into the stock at the bottom. Then put your rack on and put the breast over the top. Make sure your your turkey breast is nice and seasoned. And then you're going to cook it in the oven. And the moisture from the turkey stock underneath should keep the, the meat nice and moist and keeping your skin nice and crispy over the top. And how are you going to season it? Just with the butter and and salt and pepper? Yeah, you can do it just like how you would a whole turkey. You can continue to baste it throughout the process with butter and salt, pepper, lots of herbs. A nice poultry seasoning would would be great as well. More listeners, more questions. Here they are. Hello, Chef Salone and the KPBS team. This is Lily from San Diego. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. Um, my question is, do you use the Turkish giblets and the spices in your stuffing? Thank you, Chef, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. For me, I, I try to read my audience and kind of see who I have over for Thanksgiving. If, it's a, if I have a couple of other fellow chefs over, I'm definitely going to be using the giblets inside the uh, stuffing and maybe even in the, in the sauce as well. Um, I think the liver adds great flavor to any, any gravy or stuffing. But, you know, not everyone is a, is a big fan of the giblets, especially for kids. It's not necessarily to have them in there. So if they're adventurous eaters, I, I would do, go for it. But if not, I would leave them out. Okay, and here's another question. Hello, Chef Brandon and the KPPS team. This is Ali from Rancho Bernardo. I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. And my question is, what's the difference between stuffing and dressing? Thank you. (laughs) The age-old question, dressing and stuffing. For me, I think it's always been kind of a regional thing. I grew up in the Midwest, and um, I had half of my family calling it dressing and half of it calling it stuffing. I always kind of leaned towards the stuffing side of it. (laughs) Um, But I, I believe stuffing is stuffed inside this turkey and baked and the dressing is not and cooked on the side but you know up for debate i would say on that one basically interchangeable (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
What do you prefer? We're not supposed to cook the stuffing in the bird anymore, right? You know, if you do it the way I was describing with doing the the turkey breast separate from the legs, I think it's best to do it on the side in a, in a separate pan. And you can really get more crispy edges if you do it in a pan. If you do it in the turkey, it, it stays moist, but you don't really get those like crispy edges. So do you have a dish that you're most excited to make this Thanksgiving? Tell us about it. Ooh, well, I find that I am the master of mashed potatoes. Um, <laughs> that's my go-to. Everyone always asks me to make it for them every year. If you'd like, I can let you in on my, on my yes, secrets. Yes, your secret. Yes. Sure. <laughs> so if you're about a potato per person, or maybe depending on the size of the potatoes, I would say a little bit less. I take heavy cream and butter. I, I, don't, I don't mess around with the milk. I just go straight to the heavy cream. Um, it's only one time a year that you're, you're eating Thanksgiving. So as soon as I start boiling my potatoes, I have a separate pot going with the heavy cream and the butter on a very low simmer. I take about five, six cloves of the garlic, and that's simmering in there with rosemary and thyme, whole rosemary and thyme. Once the potatoes are done boiling and cooked all the way through, I strain them out, strain out the water, and I press it through a potato masher so or a ricer. This gets um, nice and fluffy mashed potatoes. And as soon as those potatoes come out of the ricer, I whisk it into my butter and cream mixture, which should be nice and, and thick at this point because it's been cooking down for, you know, probably about 35 to an hour. Then you pull out your, your rosemary and your thyme stems just so people don't get eat on those. And then you have a nice, smooth potato garlicky puree. I think you've just elevated the mashed potato experience for the entire county. <laughs> yes. You got to make that. sure you keep those uh, whole chunks of garlic in there and, and kind of whisk it into the potatoes. So you get you still get some pieces of the, the garlic, but they're also mixed up in there. Fabulous. Our listeners have more questions for you, so let's hear what they have to say. Hi, I'm Eric from Allied Gardens. You know, a lot of the science of cooking a good turkey for Thanksgiving seems to be centered on the method, but it rarely seems to deviate much from the typical holiday roast bird flavor. Are there alternatives to the classic roast turkey flavors that you've tried or would recommend to people who want to try something new this holiday? And happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, I, I definitely like to mix up the traditional flavors. Um, I spent, you know, 20 years eating the same flavored turkey. So when I was in charge, I liked to mix it up. One year I did a smoked turkey breast. Um, for me, like smoking any kind of chicken or, or poultry, is it comes out awesome. Um, if you're familiar with smokers, it's, it's really fun. It creates like an all-day experience. and um, you can cook outside and a lot more fun for me. And then I've also done fried turkey, you know, like a, a crispy Kentucky fried turkey is always fun and different. You do a nice buttermilk soak and then do a nice breading and deep fry the turkey is, is also a really fun alternative. But not if it's frozen. <laughs> not if it's frozen. Okay. I think we have a question from one of the younger members of our audience. I'm Edie. I live in San Diego. I'm in sixth grade, and I'm having Thanksgiving dinner with my grandparents. I'm vegan, and they're not. I was wondering, what are some dishes that we can make that everyone will like? 
you can make so many different things. And just because you're vegan shouldn't stop you from making some really great food on Thanksgiving. Squash is definitely a great vegetable for making things vegan and vegetarian and doing fun things with because they, they're very versatile. You can stuff them. Um, you could take the filling and do so many different things with them. For me, I like to do a whole stuffed squash and to do more of a vegan stuffing put it inside the squash and roast it whole in the oven. Um, that's always a fun thing to do for the vegan guests. And how is vegan stuffing different from regular stuffing? Well, you can still keep the traditional flavors. You can have your onion, celery, garlic, your, your breadcrumbs. Just make sure you use something that doesn't use milk or butter, something more like a sourdough. And then you use a, a vegetable stock instead of turkey stock. Um, they even make a really great vegan butter nowadays that you you just follow almost the exact same stuffing recipe and just sub out for vegan ingredients. Let's go to another question. Hi, this is Kim in La Mesa. I'm wondering, do you think it's worth it to make your own cranberry sauce? Thanks. I definitely think it's worth it to make your own cranberry sauce. Um, yeah, I never was a big fan of the uh, the jiggly stuff out of the out of the can. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like uh, get some frozen cranberries. Um, very easy to make. Take them right from frozen, put them in a pot. I like to use some kind of bourbon or rum with it. Um, you can just pour the rum or bourbon right in there with the cranberries. Um, add add a little bit of sugar. You can always adjust the sugar at the end, um, depending on how how bitter you like your cranberries. Um, I always like to do it with a little bit of orange zest and orange juice, uh, definitely throw in some whole cinnamon sticks. And then from there, just let it simmer until it, it all comes together in an, a nice thick jam. Sounds like a cranberry sauce I like. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, now, we've been talking a lot about the main course and side dishes. Let's get into the best desserts to pair with a holiday meal. Do you have any recommendations on desserts to make for Thanksgiving that are not pies? You can always make a really great bread pudding that is something easy to make. And typically people have a lot of bread around Thanksgiving time. So you would only need a few simple ingredients to make it. Um, you just take some eggs and milk, whisk those up together, and, and then you want to add your spices that you like. I like to do like cinnamon and nutmeg, like to do a little bit of clove and allspice and coriander. Inside there, you can do some chopped apples, uh, some winter fruits. You can do pears, um, different things like that. And you simply just pour it over the bread. You're going to want to add your sugar into the egg mix as well, and you bake that. And it'll make a nice custardy bread pudding. Yeah, sounds good. And, and one of our listeners has a dessert-related question for you. Hi, Chef. My name is Shauna. I live in Bonzel. Thank you so much, first of all, for taking my question. And happy Thanksgiving. Um, I just wanted to know, so every year I make a pumpkin cheesecake. And I love it. It's a huge hit. My family loves it as well. But I typically buy a pre-made store-bought graham cracker crust. And this year I really want to go all out and make it really homemade and make my own um, homemade graham cracker crust. So I was wondering if you had any tips and tricks on making a really delicious one. You really don't need a lot to make a really great graham cracker crust. Um, by the way, the pumpkin cheesecake sounds like a great idea. Graham cracker crust. You want to buy some nice graham crackers. You know, I think the honey, the honey gold ones are the most traditional, but you blend those up and you want to get a good amount of butter. 
you want enough butter to definitely coat all the, the graham crackers and melt that down and add any additional spices you'd like. I like to add a little bit of honey um, to give it a little bit of different sweetness, a little different flavor, a little bit of nutmeg that I grind up in there and cinnamon. After you mix that all together, it should, it should feel like a wet sand. Um, you're going to push that into your pie tin and make sure you press it firm. That's the key. You need to make sure you press it really firm. And then I usually let it sit in the fridge to, to firm up. Um, you can also do these ahead of time, put them in the freezer. And, you know, I, I know Thanksgiving's coming up, so it's a little late for that, but good planning for next year. And of course, we must pair all this delicious food with something to drink, right? Here's another listener's question. Hi, Chef Brandon. This is Ben from Del Cerro. My question for you is what beverages pair well with the Thanksgiving dinner? Thank you. For me, I, I, I like white wine typically with, with Thanksgiving dinner. Um, for me, the red wine kind of overpowers the turkey and some of the herbs that you use and the, the subtle flavors in Thanksgiving dinner. So for me, I like to have like a nice Sauv Blanc or Chardonnay that really pairs well with the the light gravy and the, the white turkey meat. Um, also, if you want to do like a, a fun cocktail, definitely something with bourbon and maybe apple cider is always a good, a good route as well. San Diego is known for its beer. So are there any beer with turkey recommendations? Ooh, beer with turkey. Um, there's so many great breweries around San Diego. For me, I like North Park Brewing. They have a really great, it's called Birdie and Bogey, I believe. They made it for uh, some Frisbee golfers out here in San Diego. But it's a really clean, crisp, easy, easy drinking Thanksgiving beer. Um, you can have a couple of them and not be too full for, for Thanksgiving dinner. A lot of people plan to eat out on Thanksgiving. What is your restaurant planning for Thanksgiving? We're doing a three-course Thanksgiving meal here at the Pendry. Um, it includes three courses uh, with a great dessert at the end. We also offer Thanksgiving to go. I know it's difficult to cook if you're only two people or three people or well, even by yourself. So you can get um, Thanksgiving to go for your house. It includes a holiday pie. For Thanksgiving here at the Pendry, we're doing um, a couple fun dishes. Uh, we're doing a nice butternut squash soup. Um, we're doing a brown butter gnocchi with some crispy pork belly and some fried sage on top. And then we also have a really nice chanterelle mushroom and goat cheese terrine, something a little different, vegetarian option. We, we do a pecan caramel apple stuffing with our turkey. We also, if you're not really feeling turkey this year. We have a nice mustard, uh, persimmon mustard glazed salmon and a really awesome braised short rib for people that aren't into turkey. Something for everybody. Something for everyone. For everyone preparing a Thanksgiving meal, what should they be doing today to get ready for the feast tomorrow? You can actually get a lot of things done ahead of time that will save you a lot of time on Thanksgiving day so that you can spend more time with your family. Um, for me, I like to always peel my potatoes for the mashed potatoes the day before, um, keep them in water. Uh, I know that doesn't sound like a, it would save you a lot of time, but really all you got to do is pour it in the pot and turn it on at that point. A lot of little things like that will definitely help you save time. Um, your stuffing can definitely be done the day before and reheated. I would not recommend doing that the day of Thanksgiving. Gravy can definitely 
be done the day before unless you like to take the drippings from the turkey, which I like to do. So you, you might be able to save that one for the day of Thanksgiving. Um, cranberry sauce should definitely be done before Thanksgiving. That one's that one's easy to do. Other than that, you know, you got your turkey and your brine um, and just be ready to be able to just put everything in the oven, you know, so you don't have to take things out of containers, put them into pots. You could just put the pot right into the fridge and save yourself some some extra dishes. Well, Chef, I know that you're going to be busy, busy, busy on Thanksgiving itself, but how are you going to be celebrating this year? You know, most of my family is back in the Midwest, but I do have friends family over here in San Diego. So we're we're doing like a, a fun friends Thanksgiving the day after. All my friends like to bring a, a couple dishes. Uh, I usually still do the turkey, even though I'm going to be working. I, I find time to uh, <laughs> get the turkey done. Um, yeah, should be a great time. It's so important for all of us to remember the things we're grateful for, maybe especially this year. I know I'm grateful for my family and for living here in San Diego. Would you share with us, Chef, what are some of the things you're grateful for? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely grateful for a lot of things this year, you know, going through this pandemic and you definitely um, don't take things for granted. Um, I actually was able to get married this year after after about a year of postponement. So um, I'm definitely thankful for my new wife and, um, you know, our first Thanksgiving as a married couple this year and just thankful for my health and my family's health. And that's about it. I can't thank you enough for speaking with us today. Thank you for sharing your insights, being on the show, being our turkey talk expert. And I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving from all of us at KPBS. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. We have several of Chef Brandon Sloan's delicious Thanksgiving recipes on our website, kpbs.org. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman from all of us at Midday Edition. Have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.